Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Aranex podcast, a podcast full of the news and views about the changing shape of the shipping and ocean space as sustainability, decarbonisation, digitalisation and all sorts of pressures come to play on it. I'm Craig Eason. I'm the editor of Fathom World, a news and analysis site which focuses on the technologies, the people, the policies and the business decisions that influence those changes. And in this episode of the podcast, we're going to look at how small island developing states and least developing countries are seeking to sharpen their legal teeth to challenge countries they believe are putting their populations at risk through a lack of climate action. I think the really exciting thing about this is that it's kind of bypassing all those institutional processes that we see in the IMO and it shows that climate vulnerable countries are starting to take kind of matters into their own hands to try and achieve the change that they need to see if they are to survive within the next 100 years. And we hear about the future of work for seafarers and the challenges they face. Uh, we look into infringement of privacies by uh, making use of artificial intelligence and big data. So that's why big data, now we, we collect a lot of data, but this big data might be used for uh, unethical purposes by the employers and how Ship Recycling Convention, the Hong Kong Convention, may be coming into force after 16 years, but the policy work is far from over. Now, this episode of the podcast is being put together as country delegations at the IMO are gathering to work out levels of ambition that the shipping industry should be given to decarbonise itself, both through the Marine Environment Protection Committee and in the week ahead, a special what they call intercessional meeting. It's the 15th intercessional meeting actually to focus on some key areas around this. Now what I've heard so far from the intercessional is that there has been agreement in the week on life cycle assessment guidelines for marine fuels. Now a point on that that solves one question and how fuels will be assessed or can be assessed on a well-to-wake perspective and not only on the missions relating to their onboard combustion. So that's good news for some future fuels such as biofuels and maybe e-fuels like methane and methanol which emit CO2 when burned on the ship but are considered carbon neutral as the CO2 can come from renewable resources or through potential carbon capture sources. But other issues being addressed at those meetings are more controversial and member states are still struggling to find common ground. This includes the level of ambition that the IMO should strive for, including the targets and the dates for those targets. It seems easier to agree on vague long-term 2050 targets rather than the specifics for 2030 or 2040. And the differences over policy measures, such as fee baits, levies, fuel standards and so on, are still there. Now this kicking the can down the road, as some call it, has been a challenge, especially for some least developed countries and small island developing states. So in this episode, we're looking at another additional avenue some of those developing nations are taking to try and speed up climate action. 
Over a thousand delegates from amongst the 175 IMO member states, 66 intergovernmental organisations and 88 NGOs of the IMO will meet to talk climate mitigation, to talk about how to reduce the emissions from ships and potentially to go to full emissions reduction, albeit at net level. There are some countries that feel the pace is far, far too slow, that there is too much procrastination, that the targets are not robust, that countries are not responding to the crisis that they themselves are witnessing. These are countries like Vanuatu, like Tuvalu, the small island nation-states, the countries that see rising sea levels as an existential threat. And therefore they feel that the lack of agreement at the UN bodies, whether at the IMO or the UNFCCC, are doing nothing to save them. So while they continue to implore, albeit diplomatically, the blocking nations at the IMO and elsewhere to move quickly, they're simultaneously trying another approach. One could call it a stealth approach because they're looking at how the UN's other conventions and bodies, like the law of the sea, that's UNCLOS, could work in their favour. Some of these some of these threatened countries have come together and have garnered support from developed countries and seeking what is known as advisory opinions, both at the tribunal of the law of the sea, which normally deals with UNCLOS-related disputes over issues such as territorial rights and obligations, and at the International Court of Justice. So, this is two similar actions that have been taken through two different legal channels. In March this year, Vanuatu led a call requesting the International Court of Justice to give an advisory opinion on the obligations of states in respect to climate change under international law. Meanwhile, a separate coalition of small island states, or COSIS, has been formed and put a similar request for an advisory opinion on the tribunal which exists to settle those disputes I mentioned at the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. While these requests for an advisory opinion do not necessarily focus on shipping and the work at the IMO, there is understanding, according to one green advocacy group, Opportunity Green, that if the outcomes of these requests fall in favour of developing countries, it could enable them to force developed countries in particular to take action or even pay for their part in the climate problem. So I spoke with Carly Hicks at Opportunity Green, who's been helping some of the developing countries in their fight to get climate justice, to explain the process to me and what it actually means. There are currently two advisory opinions being sought at two separate international courts. So one is the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea, and then there's a second, which has been sought by um, the island of Vanuatu at the International Court of Justice, also in respect to climate change. Now, as Hicks says, one of the groups has gone to the Tribunal of the Law of the Seas, while Vanuatu led a coalition of 132 countries at the United Nations to get the UN to adopt a General Assembly resolution calling for the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, to also offer an advisory opinion. It was, for the small island state of Vanuatu, an important move, according to Minister Jotham Napat, when the UN resolution was adopted three months ago to get the ICJ to offer its legal opinion on the responsibilities of countries to respond to climate change. To the people of Vanuatu who did not cause this climate crisis, justice is coming and I assure you that your government stands beside you in your struggle and that we will continue to fight to see a fossil fuel free future for our children. Today, we celebrate the adoption of Vanuatu's UN 
resolution. Tomorrow, we need to see states reconsider their obligations and act with ambition in accordance with international law. So that was Vanuatu leading the charge at the UN to get the International Court of Justice to offer a device. Now, as I mentioned, there was a similar action with the small island developing states. Here's Carly Hicks at Opportunity to Green on this parallel move to take the legal system to the fight. The COSIS group, which is the Commission of Small Island States on Climate Change and International Law, so they are a group of Pacific Island states who came together um, in the back end of last year, in autumn last year, and they were specifically grouped together in order to approach the Tribunal on the Law of the Sea. The Law of the Sea, as you might know, is the law that governs how countries and ships use our oceans across the world. So the COSIS was put together to ask the Tribunal of the Law of the Sea what countries are obliged to do in respect of mitigating the impact of climate change on oceans. An advisory opinion is not a dispute resolution process. It's an opportunity for states to ask the tribunal um, how it would interpret certain obligations under the law of the sea. So the tribunal is not going to say when this advisory opinion is released that X, X country is doing the wrong thing or Y country is in breach of this obligation. It's going to provide a general view of how it would interpret certain provisions under UNCLOS. So two moves to use international law using a tribunal which focuses on CLOS and the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Now, Opportunity Green has also added its voice, notably to the COSIS move, to make sure shipping is part of that legal discussion. Hicks says that this move will give countries the confidence, once these opinions have been published, to target other countries for not acting. This isn't just down to the International Maritime Organisation. In fact, the law of the sea requires countries individually to act to mitigate against the effect of GHG emissions on the marine environment. So the, the really exciting thing for us could be that come January, if the IMO has not set down standards that are stringent enough, and when I say stringent enough, I mean are in accordance with what the Paris Agreement requires, so the temperature limit of pursuing 1.5 degrees temperature rise, there is a potential that come January when the tribunal hopefully is hopefully says that, yes, countries should deal with shipping emissions um, in accordance with the Paris Agreement. We could then use that to um, support, for example, a climate vulnerable country who has suffered the effects of climate change and has um, suffered the damages of climate change and sort of had a loss because of that, to bring a claim against another country probably a developed country, for not acting in accordance with their legal obligations. And that obviously could be incredibly influential. And we are just trying to get the word out as much as possible that countries really need to be paying attention to this, because if they don't act strongly enough in the next couple of weeks, you know, they, they could be seeing consequences further down the line anyway. They're not going to be let off the hook um, if they don't act um, strongly enough to, to set targets for emissions reductions. Carly Hicks at Opportunity Green on how developing countries are seeking to sharpen their legal teeth to challenge countries and companies that they think are not taking seriously their responsibilities to respond to the climate crisis.
A reminder that you're listening to the Aranax podcast from Fathom World, and I'm your host, Craig Eason. Now, last week, the World Maritime University and ITF, the International Transport Workers Federation, issued a report on the impact of technology on seafarers. At a whopping 247 pages, it's a deep dive into how the transformation of the shipping industry with digitalization, decarbonization and tougher regulations are having big impacts on the people who work and will still need to work on ships. One of the authors of the report, which amongst other things identifies the training challenges, the social issues and of course the things that make the transformation tough for seafarers today and in the future, is Professor Eikot Ulsa at a World Maritime University. So I asked him about something I've been covering before in the podcast and on Fathom World, how seafarers are going to get trained. But life learning is important and future training needs needs to be not put the burden on the seafarers. It has to be borne by the ship owners. Uh, this is one thing. The other thing is uh, life learning I mentioned. Uh, skill caps already is there and the soft skills are important. And also, Craig, another message is future is combination of many things. MET institution, still they will be playing an important role, but this will be supported by supported by the technology providers because technology is really advancing very fast. Nobody is able to catch them, neither the regulations nor the training institution. So that's why it will be the combination of three things. MET institutions, technology providers, they have specific training, special trainings, as well as these online uh, educational programs. Now, in one part of the report, a word appeared, something that I've not come across before, techno-stress. And in another section, references to how AI may not be as beneficial a technology that companies would have us think. Here's the professor again. Uh, we look into techno-stress. Techno-stress means, again, people are able to get stress. I mean, it is very much linked to skills competencies as well. When you see a new technology, it creates a stress on your side. Okay, is it the chapter 5.4, Craig? Is techno stress 5.3? I'm sorry. And uh, okay, and that is the one uh, uh, we did a survey for this. This one. Uh, actually, we got the idea from other industry sectors. There is no such study yet, but uh, we realized that that is an important aspect, academic, academically not covered and not touched touch upon by the relevant stakeholders. Second one we did, uh, we look into infringement of privacies by uh, making use of artificial intelligence and big data. So that's why big data, now we, we collect a lot of data, but this big data might be used for uh, unethical purposes by the employers. Professor Eikot Ulsa at the World Maritime University in southern Sweden and co-author of the new report, Transport 2040, Impact of Technology on Seafarers, the Future of Work. Dig into the show notes for this episode for a link to the report. Now, our last story in the podcast today is related to the news last week that the 2009 Hong Kong Convention on Ship Recycling will now come into force in 2025. Bangladesh, one of the top four ship recycling countries, has become a signatory of the convention, as has major flag state Liberia. Now, apart from the 11th hour session of Bangladesh to the convention, and I'll not go into that here, but you can find more details on Fathom World about how if Bangladesh hadn't ratified, it may have played real havoc on the convention ever coming into force. But apart from that, I wanted to know what this means to shipping, because of course the Hong Kong Convention 
is not the only piece of legislation influencing what ship owners can do with the ships that are old and need to be scrapped. There is of course the Basel Convention, the European Waste Shipment Regulation and the European Ship Recycling Regulation. So three other pieces of regulation and requirements on top of the IMO's Hong Kong Convention that impact how shippers can and cannot scrap their ships. These four regulations all influence each other and it would seem have room for various interpretations by both those against how some facilities dismantle ships and those that see those facilities offering the largest opportunity to have enough recycling capacity in the industry. So to see what this all means, there's only one person I could really talk to to get an overarching policy picture and that's Nikos Mekalis. Mekalis was the man at the IMO who was partly responsible for delivering the final text that became the Hong Kong Convention in 2009 and since leaving the IMO has remained heavily involved in the business of ship recycling policy. So what's the issue with the Basel Convention and these EU regulations? Basel Convention in its uh, an early conference of its parties discussed whether it should apply to ship recycling or ship dismantling, as they call it, or not. And they came to a very kind of difficult to interpret decision that uh, when ships become waste, then they are subject to Basel Convention. That we take in the main to mean that when a ship is on its route for recycling, it's subject to Basel Convention. But a Basel Convention deals really, it's a, it's a agreement between governments more than anything. It's a paper exercise aimed to avoid illegal exports of waste, like there has been various uh, drums of containers full of terrible chemicals being taken to an African country and dumped. And whereas Basel Convention on its own has got uh, the a requirement to show that, yes, we can do it. There is the amendment that came into force more recently, which says that you cannot export from OECD to non-OECD full stop. It's not that you have strict requirements, but you cannot do it. When Basel discussed whether shipping should be included, the result was not very clear cut. However, European Union took it that Basel should be applied to shipping, and that was back in Yes, early 2000, and in implemented the European uh, Way Shipment Regulation, and that is enforced on ships. And that's why there have been various cases of ships being detained in Europe. And I remind you also that Basel Convention does not apply to flags, flagged ships, it applies to ships, uh, to, to exported ships, which means ships leaving the country. So if a ship of Liberian flag leaves a European port, for recycling on its last voyage, and if it's deemed that it is on it is waste, then the ship will be detained if it goes to a non-OECD country, anywhere outside Turkey, in other words, or Europe. Now, all that needs resolving because back in 2011, European Union and some other countries took to Basel Convention the issue of equivalency, and they said there is Hong Kong Convention has been it's been adopted. Is not yet enforced, but we want it de deemed equivalent to Basel Convention because if it's deemed equivalent, then according to Vienna Convention, the most recent convention has the legitimacy on the on the on the issue. And what happened was that uh, two countries objected, 
neither of which had anything to do with shipping. And because of the two who uh, did not agree to the decision that they are equivalent, so there's been no decision. But European Union, Japan, and many other countries supported it strongly, the equivalence. Now, that has not happened. And until that happens, you have this uh, uncertainty as to what uh, applies. In other words, a mess. You can't have the requirements of Basel Convention and requirements of Hong Kong Convention applied to the same ship. And what that means is administrations, not ship owners, will need to get their act together and take the subject back to the next COP of Basel and agree that it's equivalent. And when the two regulations are deemed equivalent, then at least that resolves that side. The other thing that we'll have to follow is European regulation on ship recycling will have to amend itself. And interestingly, there is the, the Article 30, I think, point two or something like that. And this is quite important. The Commission shall review this regulation not later than 18 months prior to the entry into force of the Hong Kong Convention. Now, the word shall in, uh, in these regulations is a must, is an is a order. This review shall consider the inclusion of ship recycling facilities authorized under the Hong Kong Convention in the European list in order to avoid duplication of work and administrative burden. Now, that's a very fine uh, statement and it's very sensible, but there is a problem that European Union still has got in force the way shipment regulation. The way shipment regulation says the European regulation are excluded Ships under the scope of European regulation are excluded from the scope of the waste shipment regulation. Nevertheless, Europe is unable to approve yards in non-OECD countries because it would violate the uh, waste shipment regulation and Basel Convention, ban amendment. So what all that means in my kind of uh, non-political viewpoint is that Europe will have to wait for the equivalence before it can unlock this regulation 30.2, make use of 30.2 to review the regulation and consider the inclusion. But it only says, shall consider. So they could say we considered and we do not see it possible because of the ban amendment or whatever. But the idea behind 30.2 is that you have one regime, you don't have two regimes. So this spaghetti of policy needs to be resolved to ensure that ship owners can get more clarity when they want to sell ships for recycling. Now what I also asked Nikos Mekalis about was the issuance by class societies of documents of compliance to recycling facilities in countries like India, Bangladesh and Turkey to say that they're in line with the Hong Kong Convention. Now he says they're not strictly necessary it's now up to the countries to get the yards up to the standards as set in the Hong Kong Convention and which they have now brought in their national regulations. These uh, certificates of compliance, uh, the statements of compliance, they were not certificates because the word certificate is kind of uh, reserved for uh, certificates that are issued on behalf of flag states. So these were statements of compliance and they were totally voluntary and they were done without any involvement of the flag of the, of the country of residence. It was in the period before entry into force of the convention for owners who wanted to voluntarily go to better yards or to yards who fulfill the standard to be able to know who they are. 
And in fact, when Hong Kong Convention was adopted, there were a number of resolutions adopted, including a resolution saying encouraging flag states and to voluntarily to encourage opponents to voluntarily implement the standards, and the same with yards. So all these certificates, documents of compliance, whatever they call statements of compliance, are before the convention enters into force. After the convention enters into force, uh, they may continue to be available, but they are kind of like marketing tools. The reality is that the, the state who's, where the yards are resident has the responsibility to oversee their compliance. I mean, that's, that's what an international convention is. And I heard again people argue about this, saying, but, you know, the convention is not good because it does not uh, enforce, it allows the countries to enforce. But this is all conventions are like that. The only difference is that with, with Marple and Solas and so on, you have the port state control, that which is a new invention. It was not there to start with. It's an additional tool where a port can check compliance, but it's always the flag state or the state of residence that's responsible. So in two years' time, uh, there should be a lot of improvement in the remaining yards. They should be certified, certificated by their country of residence. Hopefully, Pakistan will be on board. But even Pakistan is not on board, still it works because you have the majority, the vast majority is now Hong Kong, parts of Hong Kong. And all that can work fine. So two years and a day from today, or actually two years from yesterday, Everything can be working as intended, except there will still be the possibility of being caught foul of Basel Convention if a port state decides to implement it. And most countries do not implement, do not enforce Basel Convention, uh, except European. In Europe, the countries are enforcing it and they're enforcing it quite strictly and they have uh, systems of educating judges and network between judges and, uh, uh, and prosecutors and all sorts of uh, interesting structures. Nikos Mekalis, a ship recycling policy expert, talking to me about the impact of the Hong Kong Convention now coming into force in 2025. Well that's it for this edition of the episode of the podcast. Feel free as ever to get in touch with me and of course, go to Fathom World, get signed up for the newsletter where you can get wind of any new episodes, deep dives into the stories we cover in the podcast and the additional stories that we publish on the transformation of the ocean, shipping and maritime spaces. I'm Craig Eason, editor of Fathom World. And by the way, I'm in London for MEPC 80 to see for myself how much appetite the delegations there have. And at that point, take a look at Fathom World in the coming days where we've delved into the delegations, who they are, to dissect just exactly where they come from. And I don't mean which country delegations they sit on, but what interests they may secretly have. So until the next time, goodbye for now.